Thanks for pressing play. Most people want to have a great life and do great work. But we are told the way to achieve legendary results is either to have talent, whatever that means, or to practice 10,000 hours a day, blah, 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 or that old joke, uh, excuse me, ma'am, can you tell me how to get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Well, what if there was a different way, a more proven way, that even mere mortals can embrace to achieve greatness? Our guest today is Dr. Ron Friedman, and he is a PhD and award-winning social psychologist, and he is the author of a red-hot uh, number one bestseller called Decoding Greatness, Decoding Greatness, and I highly recommend this awesome new book. And on this episode, we go deep on how you can decode greatness, what legends before us have done using their approaches, models, templates, and thinking to turbocharge our lives, our success, and our ability to make a difference. Pay special attention to Dr. Friedman's insights on how to validate ideas. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and man, are we glad that you are here. We are the podcast dedicated to having real, different dialogues, dialogues that make a difference. Ha. <laughs> We are brought to you by my friends at Malibu Milk, milk spelt with a Y. Malibu Milk is the world's first organic whole plant flax milk. And Malibu Milk is the first milk company ever created by a mom. Check out Malibu Milk with a Y.com. My friends at Hallow app are the world's first real relationship app. Uh, no more BS in your feed, no algorithms, no filters, just your real friends, real conversations, and maybe most importantly, in real private. Check out H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com today or search Hallow app on your app store on your smartphone. And why not check out Category Pirates on Amazon.com? We have been releasing a series of uh, many ebooks on everything from The Big Brand Lie, um, The Better Trap, uh, Why Parents Need to Start Thinking Like Venture Capitalists, Not CEOs, and a whole bunch of other fascinating and, uh, dare I say, provocative topics. So go to Amazon.com and search Category Pirates today. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Ron, it's great to see you. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Chris. Stoked you're here, and uh, thanks for writing this book. Well, you know what? Uh, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> I did. I did. I enjoyed it very much. And it it you seem like a nicer person than me, but uh, it seems like in a way you're uh, maybe picking a fight's too strong of a word, but you're certainly giving a nudge to some of the uh, historical, quote-unquote, common wisdom about what it takes to be great. That's how it at least feels to me as a reader. Is that is that what you are wanting to do here? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, you know, the, for, for those who aren't aware of, of the argument in the book, let me just sum it up. So, you know, this, this is a book about what it takes to perform at the highest levels. And uh, my first book was called The Best Place to Work. And in it, I took over a thousand academic studies. I translated them to plain English so that regardless of whether you're a CEO or just someone starting out, you have access to the best research on what it takes to perform at the highest levels and create a great workplace. 
there was something missing in that book. What was missing is that even within the best workplaces, there's a range of performance levels. Some people are top performers, others are not. And in this book, Decoding Greatness, I was curious about what is it that top performers are doing differently. And what I discovered is that they're using a method that most people don't talk about, and yet it is far more common than we recognize. And it's because we've been led to believe there are kind of two big stories about what it takes to achieve at the highest levels, regardless of whether you're talking about sports or um, knowledge work. Those two big stories are, one, that it takes talent, right? That you have to be born with certain strengths and that the key to finding your greatness really is matching those inborn talents to a field that allows those strengths to shine. The other big story is practice. This is the Gladwell idea, 10,000 hours, practice, practice, practice. You have the right practice uh, regiment and enough discipline to do that practice and eventually you will succeed. But there's a third story and people don't often talk about it, yet it is remarkably common from entrepreneurs to inventors uh, to marketers and that approach is reverse engineering, and which simply means finding extraordinary examples in your field and then taking them apart, working backward, figure out how they were created, and then applying those lessons to create something entirely new. And so that's uh, the premise of the book, which I find fascinating. Um, maybe let's go to the two common things for a second. Um, yeah. My favorite is the talent one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm not a doctor. Uh, I'm not a professor. I'm not a PhD. I got thrown out of school um, at 18 for being stupid. Um, But I know a lot of medical doctors. I have friends who are medical doctors. And here's what I'm pretty sure of. Next to your spleen is not uh, an organ that says, good at becoming a PhD. And next to uh, Michael Jordan's kidney is not some organ called great at basketball. And so it's... I understand there's a, we all have a natural tendency to certain different things. And I I get that. And we can talk about that, but I have always found it bullshit when people say, Oh, you know, look at Jim. He's so talented at what he does. And it almost to me is insulting for the work that he put in to making it look like he's talented. So, so maybe unpack your perspective on talent for me, Ron. So I appreciate what you're saying. And I, you know, what I would take it is a slightly different direction, which I would say that a lot of times we see people whose performance is really extraordinary. For example, I'm watching the US Open right now and I'm watching Djokovic. And Djokovic is remarkable in that he just will not lose. And he has uh, repeated his successes no matter who he's playing. And really, these are tough, tough matches. They're going on for hours at a time. And you've really got to have extraordinary determination. Now, the reaction I might have watching someone like Djokovic, who's really extraordinary what he does, is experience jealousy. It's to say, man, I wish I had that. But when you look at extraordinary performances through the lens of reverse engineering, you have a different perspective. And that different perspective is, what can I learn from this? How can I improve my game through unpacking the methodologies and strategies that Djokovic is applying? And so now that emotion, which would have been negative and uncomfortable and probably unhelpful in a way, I can turn that into a positive emotion and apply it to new learnings and insights because now I have a mechanism by which to understand how he succeeded. Now, to to your point about talent and is it really all there is, I agree with you that even if you have those inborn strengths, 
that alone is not going to get you to the top of your profession. You also have need a certain level of determination. You need that practice regimen. You also need to un- understand what, what it is that leads someone to be successful. But I do think there is a, a role for talent. I'm not suggesting that talent doesn't matter. There absolutely, it absolutely matters. If you're talented at what you do, if you have that uh, ability to practice a certain way with uh, th- through many, many years, sure, that's going to help. But if that's all you're doing, if all you're doing is looking for your talent and practicing for hours on end, I would argue you're not going to, you're selling yourself short. You're not going to perform at the level that you could if you were applying reverse engineering. Yes, couldn't agree more. And on the Gladwell 10,000 hours thing, and, and I love Gladwell, and I think that's a, it, it's a valuable insight on one dimension, but it's a really fucking broken uh, insight on another, which is to say, you know, there's an old joke in, in business that says um, some people have 25 years worth of experience and some people have one year of experience 25 times. And so, <laughs> you know, you see, you see the guitars behind me. Well, if I sat here and said, okay, I'm going to play 10,000 hours worth of guitar the way I currently play guitar... I would be a slightly improved shitty guitar player. And so it's, does the time in matter? Of course it does, but isn't it what we're doing with that time? (laughs) Isn't it to your point on reverse engineering, what models we're emulating to sort of what shoulders we're deciding to stand on top of? Yeah. You know, the guy who came up with the quote unquote 10,000 hour rule was Anders Ericsson. Uh, he's a, uh, his since passed and he, his research actually didn't argue that a, a certain time requirement, which is what that rule kind of became acknowledged for. He talked about the quality of the practice, which, uh, focused on getting quick feedback, focusing on your weaknesses. It was a very, it was called deliberate practice because it was a very deliberate practice. You had to practice in a certain way. What, Gladwell became famous for in acknowledging that rule was giving it the label as a very good marketing technique, right? The 10,000 hours rule became memorable. Deliberate practice, not so memorable. 10,000 hour rule, very memorable. Uh, but it was, it was, it was slightly um, askew from what Anders Ericsson argued for. Um, so yeah, you can practice a certain way and that will help, but that's not going to necessarily get you to where you want to be, especially because we live in an age where fields are evolving rapidly. So to your point about practicing guitar, I know a former agent, a uh, music agent. He no longer works in the music industry. It's because the bands he loved growing up no longer can be successful. Uh, he loved guitars, and he now jokes frequently that you can't get arrested for playing guitar because nobody will buy rock music. It's now that the field has evolved, and that isn't to say that guitar guitars are a lost cause. I think there's a, there's an opportunity for evolving rock music in ways that are now popular. And so unless you're paying attention to the people at the top of your field and figuring out why what they're doing is working, you're going to get left behind. So there's a glaring problem with the Gladwell notion of practice, 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 which is that even if you do practice and get to the, to execute at the perfect uh, level, the field will have evolved and that practice may not, no longer serve you. Well, as a side note, um, uh, pianos that were beloved a generation or two ago mm-hmm. are literally junk today. Very expensive, beautiful pianos, f- f- uh, family treasures, um, 
uh, native digital uh, people, that is to say people under the age of 35, consider them junk. It's, it's, it's a little painful for me to hear. <laughs> I've got a piano in my house. My, my kids play. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's still obviously value to, to playing instruments that goes beyond the musical ability per se, which is problem solving, grit, determination, that sort of thing. But, you know, the, the fact is, if you want to be a thriving musician, playing piano is not the way that's going to get you there playing your iPad and, and, uh, figuring out how to, how to, um, master a garage band will probably help you get there a little bit faster. Yes. So, so let me see if I can sort of, um, see if I got your book. So there's this argument that says we reverse engineer what legends do, um, which makes total sense to me. How did this person do this? Um, and that's what legendary teachers have done, I think for, for years. So we start by learning to emulate greats that we admire for one reason or another. However, there is a sum total of zero cover bands in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so um, if I'm the Stones and I'm inspired by Chuck Berry and I learn all the Chuck Berry songs, I'm not going to be successful just playing Chuck Berry covers. Mm -hmm. And so... The thing I was really, so, so as we unpack what the legends do and we learn to mimic them, we, we take what they do as a model, we study them, we, we do what they do. You know, uh, the, the Elizabeth Holmes trial, she wore the same shit Steve Jobs wore, right. To, 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 to cultivate that image and with herself and others. And so on one hand, that makes sense. We have to see ourselves. We have to see what's possible. But on the other hand, all of the legends we admire broken, took new ground. And so how do we walk this magic line, uh, doctor, between learning from others, decoding greatness in this way, and not turning into uh, a cover band? Yes, that's a great question. And one of the things that, one of the studies that really broke this story for me and, and made it clear to me that there was a book here is finding a study out of the out of uh, Japan that looked at what happens when people copy the work of others. And this is a fascinating study. They brought uh, uh, amateur artists into the lab and they divided them to two groups. And the one group, they had to simply draw original uh, uh, or, or paint original paintings for uh, a period of three days straight. The second group was asked to create original sketches. But then on the second day, they were asked to copy the work of an established artist. And then on the third and final day, they were once again asked to uh, create original drawings. And what they did was they compared the two groups to see which of the two groups was most creative. Was it the group that had simply made original drawings or was it the group that had uh, paused on the second day to copy the work of an established artist? And what they found was that it wasn't even close. The group that had paused to copy the work of an established artist was significantly more creative. And it wasn't simply by copying the work of the established artist. It was by going off in completely different directions. And the reason that happened, the reason we tend to be more creative after we take the time to really carefully study the work of our contemporaries or our, the people who we admire in our field is because by um, when, when we try to recreate their work, we are forced to compare our instinctive inclinations, what we wanted to do versus what they actually did. And that comparison, that process of thinking about what you wanted to do versus what the legend did 
that opens your eyes up to new opportunities that are hidden within your work. And so far from making us our work more derivative, when we copy the work of others, we actually stir our creativity and spark it in going in different directions. And that's exactly what I argue for in this book, is I argue that you sh- the emulation is not enough. You need to evolve. And there are formulas for evolving established formulas. That's the fascinating thing is that you don't, you don't just uncover what's, why something is working. There's a formula you can apply that will take your work in a new direction. One example of that is combining influences. So if I were to, for example, copy, uh, uh, decode what it is that makes the work of the stones unique, and then couple that with what it is that makes Pitbull's work unique, that would probably lead to a, an innovation that is unique. Now, will it be successful? I, know, I don't necessarily know. It's worth testing. It's a possibility. And what I love about that equation is that you realize that, wait a second, creativity doesn't necessarily mean doing something entirely new. It simply means finding a new combination. And that's freeing because now that gives me license to go and, and, and absorb all kinds of influences and feel like, okay, my job is to simply find new connections, not to start to come up with something completely original. And in fact, and we can talk about this too, Chris, there's research showing that if you are a complete original, that's likely to backfire because people don't know what to do with originality. It scares them. So having something that having a, having a formula that allows you to f- first decode what it is that makes something successful, and then two, combine that with something different now gives you an opportunity for being successful without necessarily aiming for originality. Yes, a a twist, so to speak. Um, Yeah, there's a a quote from Don Draper in this book. Don Draper, the legendary uh, creative from Sterling Cooper, uh, fictional, of course, Mad Men, where he talks about uh, the secret being derivative with a twist. That's what audiences want, something that reminds them of something that was successful in the past, but is slightly different. One of my favorite examples of that here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, there's a small chain of sushi restaurants. And as you know, most sushi restaurants compete on, our sushi's awesome, you should come here. (laughs) And of course, that's not a differentiator at all, because the root of differentiation is a word called different, and there's nothing fucking different about that. So what did these folks do? They looked at consuming sushi from a different perspective, and they said, hmm, A... Uh, we live here in California, and and we as chefs are influenced by Mexican food. And B, sushi is about the shittiest thing you can eat on the go, uh, particularly if you're in the car and your significant other, wife in my case, is like trying to feed you sushi and you're driving and, you know, she dips it in the soy sauce and it gets all over the place and then the roll blows up and it's a disaster. So the combination of these things lead them to an aha which is we're going to combine uh, Mexican and Japanese, and they launch the world's first sushi burrito. That's the category. And the company's called, you guessed it, Sushi Rito. Mm, that's a great story. And I have seen those uh, around. I didn't know what to make of it, but that story gives me a lot better context. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay, so I'm trying to understand here. So what we're saying, what you're saying based on your insights in the book, are the most powerful way to be creative is to copy a great that you admire, respect, or what have you for some period of time 
to sort of try to soak in their brain, to try to wear, wear Steve Jobs' mock turtleneck for a day or two. Even ask yourself the question, you know, what would Steve do? What would Elon do? <laughs> um, and, and then after that, use the learning of that great and the mimicking of that great as a leap off point for your own creativity. Um, is that what you want me to learn here? Well, actually, is a lot more uh, technique there that I can unpack. So far from simply saying, okay, channel Steve Jobs, I think you can actually have a very methodical approach to understanding what it is that leads his work to be unique. And there are all sorts of techniques that I talk about in this book. I'll give you an example of one or two. Um, The first being reverse outlining. And reverse outlining is a technique that is often taught in writing courses. And how it works is, you know, we all heard of the idea of outlining. Outlining is when you bullet point the points you intend to make in a finished piece. Reverse outlining is taking someone else's finished work and then working backward to figure out, okay, what are they doing in paragraph one? What are they doing in paragraph two? What are they doing in paragraph three? And so on. You can apply this to not just written works. You can do this for television shows. You can do this for podcasts. You can do this for websites. And what it forces you to do is take a step back, zoom out, see the totality of the piece all at once. And it's a, it's a practice that enables you to understand the progression of a work and identify key differences between one work and another. And so I have the story in the book of this is how I learned to write academic journal articles. Is I was, It is something that you need to do in order to get your PhD, Something I, a task I struggled with mightily at the beginning because I had no... Um, previous experience, I had no formula for understanding what does the progression of the piece need to look like. And it took months for me to figure this out until one day I decided I was going to take the work of another psychologist and then reverse outline his pieces, his academic journal articles. And when I did that, I discovered the hidden formula. What's the hidden formula? In his case, it was open up with a startling fact, then ask a rhetorical question, then do a literature review, and then introduce your theory and then go into the studies that you had to back up your theory. Once I understood that that was his formula, I was able to apply that to my work. I had to find my startling fact, then posit my rhetorical question, then do my literature review, and then introduce my thesis and studies. That approach to reverse outlining a finished piece allows you to templatize someone else's formula. And that is a mechanism that you can use for reverse outlining ads if you're a marketer. It's again, if you're a podcast, if you want to understand what makes Freakonomics unique as opposed to uh, this show or the Jordan Harbinger show, you can do that by reverse outlining them. And that gives you a starting point for better understanding what makes their show different by comparing their reverse outline against someone else's. And that's just one of the techniques that I cover in the book. And what I'm trying to communicate is that reverse engineering is far more then, uh, you know, start with the end in mind. Often, if you look online, you do a search for reverse uh, engineering. This is what people will talk about is reverse engineer your, you know, your career by thinking about where you want to end up and then work backward. And what I'm arguing in this book is that, in fact, this is a technique that has been used for generations, but it is very methodical and very systematic. And if you can apply these tools, you will be able to succeed faster by building on what has been successful in the past. So how would I go about reverse outline? Let's say I looked up to a certain 
creative person, entrepreneur, whatever the case may be. And I said, I, I wanted to emulate what she's doing. And, um, I, I agree with Dr. Friedman. And so now I want to reverse outline what she's doing. How would I do that? In the case of an entrepreneur, you have to start not with the person, but with the product or with the marketing materials, with the finished product that allows you to differentiate what is different about that particular finished product versus someone else's. We can use the example of Sushi Rito. Uh, it, here, what you're looking at is, okay, what are they doing differently? So, you know, you're, this is kind of your sweet spot, right? This is, you're focused on what is it that differentiates one person or one organization from another. And here, what you're trying to do is you're trying to understand what is going on here that's different from something else. And really, this is more of a mindset uh, than anything else, where when you encounter any kind of work online or in person uh, or, you know, anywhere in the world that, that really moves you, don't just simply move on to the next experience, but pause and think about, hey, what's going on here? What's different? What can I learn from this that I can apply to my next project? And, and really, if we take a step back before reverse outlining, there's another technique I want to share with you, which is to become a collector and to identify, again, those unique experiences that really move you and then save them somewhere. It could be bookmarking them on your browser. It can mean starting a Pinterest uh, account that allows you to save some of those images that you want to revert back to later. Marketers do this all the time where they will save websites that they want to go back to for inspiration. I can tell you copywriters save headlines. I'm a writer. I collect academic journal articles. I collect powerful words that I want to potentially draw from when I'm writing. And when you have a collection of extraordinary examples, the, the, spotting the difference becomes a lot easier because now you're comparing the items in your collection against the items that are not in your collection. So again, if we're going back to the example of the entrepreneur, maybe that entrepreneur has uh, a course, an online course that is different. Or maybe that person gives talks in a particular way. Uh, one of the things I do in Decoding Greatness is I reverse engineer the most popular TED Talk of all time, and I show you exactly what it is that's happening there by reverse outlining every paragraph and then explain the progression. I also map it out in terms of the emotion, the emotional arc. And so is, is the person expressing positive emotion, neutral emotion, or negative emotion? And once you spot that pattern, it becomes a lot easier to learn from that example. So really what we're talking about here is having a system for unpacking what makes something great and then figuring out how do we apply that to create something new. So TED Talks are an interesting example of this. I used to go to TED when it was here in Monterey, when TED was TED, um, and then it changed radically, um, I think probably for the better, and I stopped going because I thought if all the talks are online, why do I have to go to the conference? But what's happened over time, having sort of watched this thing evolve since the 90s, uh, I don't watch TED Talks anymore. Be because they are so formulaic, it's like you could tell what's coming next. It's like it's like watching a shitty rom com. It's like okay, here's the part where they break up. You know, it's like fucking a. And so you know they start off with the emotional share, and I was born with a and nobody loved me, and everybody hates me, and whatever the fuck it was. And it's like okay, so now they're tugging on my heartstrings, and and here's where they make the bigger point, and then there's the big uplift at the end, and then I'm done. So they're, they're so formulaic. They're the opposite of creative. They're the opposite of innovative. They're the opposite of interesting. And so at least in, for me, they can go fuck themselves. And so how do I, how do I, on one hand, you know, there, there was a good model that emerged there, 
but we got beat to death with it. And it's the opposite of interesting or innovative now. And this is the trap, right? This, I see this trap all the time. People say, okay, well, all I'm going to do is I'm going to copy my favorite fill in the blank author, entrepreneur, podcaster, whatever. And I'm going to do that. And you see them all over the place. There's a million knockoffs running around uh, in pick your genre uh, and none of them succeed. And so how do you learn from the formula in this example of a TED talk, which of course has worked incredibly, but at the same time, don't become an asshole hack. Great question. I share your experience about TED talks with some of them, not all of them. Uh, there is that dramatic opening. I uh, joked with another author recently that the opening line to the perfect TED talk is three years ago, I was hit by a bus because immediately it grabs the audience. You've got that emotional connection. You want to hear what happens next, but we've all heard that a million different ways. And so the key here, when you are reverse engineering a formula is to ensure that you're also evolving that formula. So in Decoding Greatness, I give the example of Twilight. When that book came out, it was a story about a teenager falling in love with a vampire. It was a tremendous success. And within a year, the market was deluged with other stories about teenagers in love with vampires. And very few of them were successful. And it wasn't because they were all bad books. It was because audience expectations shifted. And what was successful? It wasn't a teenager falling in love with a vampire. It was Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunter. It was taking the formula of what was interesting, right, of vampire hook, but twisting it slightly. And so that's what you want to do here for with your TED Talk, is you want to figure out, how can I evolve this that makes it different than the old established tired formula that everyone's heard of? And one way of doing that is by going to a completely different field. Maybe it's not just about... Uh, mashing TED Talks together, but it's drawing from stand-up comedy. Maybe there's a formula there that you can uh, you, you can apply. Maybe it's if it's from rap music. Uh, another, you know, a great example of this is Lin Manuel Miranda. Lin Manuel Miranda. If you think about, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to see In the Heights. It was on HBO earlier this year because of the pandemic, and it's the show that he wrote before Hamilton. And what's remarkable if you watch this movie is that it is very similar to Hamilton in that he is mixing Latin influences with rap music and the standard Broadway formula. That show was a success. It wasn't the smash success of Hamilton. But what did he do with Hamilton is he evolved his own formula by adding American history. And that was the breakout success. And so, again, what you see here is people stacking influences to create something entirely new. That's what breaks out. Uh, in the book, I talk about the doors and how Light My Fire, that, that started off with a basic rock and roll song. They layered on Bossa Nova, and then they added on top of that Johann Sebastian Bach for the classic opening. That's what made that song unique. Uh, and so if you can think about ways of looking outside your sphere, outside your area of expertise, and bringing in new influences, often that will result in the most successful formula. And I'll give you just one other example, which is one of my favorite examples in this book, which is the story of Barack Obama and how he became an extraordinary speaker. And not a lot of people realize this, but when Barack Obama first entered politics, he was not a success right out of the gate. In fact, he got trounced his first race for Congress. And it's because he was a law school professor. And as a law school professor, he was used to lecturing students. And voters didn't appreciate being lectured to, and they let him know at the polls. 
And so for a while, he was lost. He really did not know what he was going to do next. He thought about leaving politics until someone on his staff suggested he check out what pastors were doing in the church to engage their flock. He comes back uh, a year later, and all of a sudden, he's telling stories. He's using repetition. He's modulating his tone. He's using the, the, the pregnant pause for emotional effect. And his career takes off. And what I love about that story is it illustrates that Obama didn't go off into the wilderness and find his talent. He didn't practice for 10,000 hours. He looked at a different field and then figured out what he could incorporate into his own. And that is a formula that anyone can apply to getting better at what they do. Figure out what's working in a different field and find a new way of combining it into what you're working on. The Obama story is a great story. I I, want to go back to the TED thing, however, for a sec. Mm -hmm. What I think I heard you say was how to differentiate my TED talk. Mm -hmm. And my reaction to that is uh, exactly what I've done in my life, which is fuck TED talks. I'm not doing one. The way for me to Mm -hmm. be different is to not do a TED talk. People ask me all the time, oh, you should have a TED talk. I'm not doing a TED talk. I think they're now bullshit. And so my different, the way I differentiate my quote unquote TED talk is I give them the middle finger. I don't need your quote unquote brand. I don't need your fucking validation. I don't need to put on my LinkedIn profile. I'm a TEDx thinker. I don't need it. I reject. We have a thing in category design, uh, doctor, we call reject the premise. We start everything with reject the premise. We may end up accepting the premise or part of the premise, but in any conversation, in any endeavor of thinking of any kind we advocate start with reject the premise so in this case if the if the um if what you're trying to achieve is differentiation for communicating your ideas uh, i have chosen to fuck ted talks and my differentiation is i don't have one and i'm not going to do one um so i'm curious how you apply your thinking when you're not going to say, okay, I'm going to differentiate inside the current category, inside the current box. I get that. And for some people, that's a valid move. That's a valid choice. For people like me, that makes me borderline angry. (laughs) And I say that with love in my voice, I hope. And so if I want to go further, um, I don't want to differentiate inside the existing category or box. I want my own box. Um, How do I apply this thinking in that regard? First of all, I just want to applaud you for bucking the trend and 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 uh, embracing the the unconventional. Here, you know, I think about reverse engineering as a technique for learning and improving whatever it is you're trying to do. So, my assumption when you asked about TED talks is you want to do the TED talk. Now, you're asking something different, which is like maybe you shouldn't do the TED talk. That's fair. I think uh, it's a means to an end, right? So I think for a lot of people, it is a credibility builder. It's a marketing marketing strategy. Um, you're asking, how do I find a marketing strategy that is the most effective for me? And that's an important question because and it's one actually that I think a lot of people should spend a little bit more time uh, focusing on because in many cases, what ends up happening is because someone else in your field is doing something, you assume you should be doing it too. And a lot of wasted effort and energy goes in that direction. Whereas here, what I argue for is using this mechanism for the strategy that best serves you. And that might be different for one person versus another, because we all have inborn strengths. I'm not, again, I'm not rejecting that idea. And the key here is you want to find a strategy that works 
for you that make that feels the most authentic for you. And one of the challenges of the TED um, formula is that it strikes us as viewers as inauthentic because we've heard that formula so many times. And the question of authenticity is really critical because unless you're coming across as authentic, it's not going to work for you as a strategy, period. And so that I think is a great question. And I think it's something that, again, many of us need to spend more time thinking about is not just what's the strategy that makes the most sense uh, in my field, but what's the strategy that A, is likely to be successful, but B, feels authentic for me because that's the thing that's going to really help me stand out. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah, uh, doctor. Um, And the times in my life when I have failed and more importantly than a failure, failure to produce results, where I have disappointed myself the most is when I try to try to contort myself into something that somebody else said was the way I should contort myself. And it ends up being deeply inauthentic. Mm. However, all that said, there's been a lot of talk about authenticity in the last handful of years. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, my opinion most of the people who talk about authenticity are fucking completely inauthentic and full of shit. And they talk about being authentic like a manipulation technique. Oh, well, in your marketing, you have to be really authentic. Or the other one I love is, oh, I have a course for you, doctor, on how to build an authentic personal brand. Oh, really? The minute you say you're building a personal brand, you're being a deeply inauthentic piece of shit, in my opinion. And so... um, why is it more of us don't have the courage of our convictions? And how do we use what you're teaching us here to develop our own instincts, to develop the courage to say, okay, um, if I want to be like Muhammad Ali, I can't mimic Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was Muhammad Ali because he exhibited extraordinary courage. And if, if you're just trying to copy Muhammad Ali, there's very little courageous in that. And so how do we develop that courage to say, I'm going to stand on the shoulder of greats, but I'm not going to fall into a trap by doing the 4,332nd TED Talk because it's become an inauthentic piece of shit. (laughs) In the second half of Decoding Greatness, I actually take issue with the argument that we need to be more courageous. This is something something that we often hear on TED Talks is, right, find your courage and then you will succeed. And the argument goes that unless you're being courageous, you're not going to take risks. And unless you take risks, you're not going to be successful. That's appealing on the surface. However, what you find when you look at the most successful companies is that they actually succeed not by taking tons of risks, but by minimizing the cost if those risks fail. And many of their strategies that they use are applicable to individuals as well. One example of this is test markets. So, for example, when a brand like Levi's wants to roll out a completely new product, they will often test it first in an emerging market. And that uh, allows them to get quick feedback from an inexpensive group that doesn't damage their overall brand. Comedians do this too with a with a test materials in in a small nightclub. Politicians do this as well when they will test certain phrases and speeches at diners or VFW halls before they go up on stage at the big convention. And what that allows them to do is get quick feedback to see what's resonating, what's not, what is this worth uh, proceeding with in the future with a bigger 
uh, with a bigger market. A great example of how individuals can use this is uh, the way that uh, Tim Ferriss tested his original title for his title for his first book, The Four Hour Workweek. He had no idea what that title was going to be. And what he did was he came up with five different titles. I think it was five, four or five. And he tested them out using Google AdWords. And his what he was trying to do was determine which one got the most clicks. I don't even know if the clicks actually ended up going anywhere. But it was a way for him to get quick feedback from an audience that cost him $200 to reach, didn't damage his brand, allowed him to come up with the best title. And and I think most of us in the tech world, the entrepreneur world, certainly the marketing world, understand the value of A-B testing. Mm -hmm. But individuals, unfortunately, are not using that. You can do that for all kinds of things. People who are not entrepreneurs need to do more of that. Uh, And it's an example of a way of minimizing the cost. A-B testing, I guess, is is a a way of, of framing it it's often more than just A-B testing because it's not just two versions. It's actually getting feedback on whether or not a concept has resonance. So, you know, I, I talk about in the book about how people often, if they are considering writing a book, they will test that idea with their friends or with their colleagues. Whereas, you know, the best audience to take that to is to a client or to a p- potential book buyer and then figure out whether or not that concept is resonating. And so we end up defaulting to an audience of convenience as opposed to an audience that can actually give us the authentic feedback that we need in order yeah, to determine what I get that. idea is worth pursuing. And, and the reason, I mean, most people don't really understand this, um, but the reason mm-hmm. uh, Donald Trump won the presidency uh, in, in large part was legendary A-B testing of digital advertising. I'm not saying that was the only thing. He was also doing that in his speeches. Correct. He, he, he tests it like a comedian does he, because he's been 100%. a professional speaker for 40 fucking years Drain or whatever. The swamp is. is an example of a phrase that came out. He, he, he has said in interviews, he didn't think that phrase was going to work, but it got such a response that he continued using it. Same thing with locker up and, you know, many of those kind of mantras. And so in his speeches, essentially he's AB testing and they did exactly that with the digital marketing, the Facebook marketing. I think it's fairly common knowledge that Facebook offered the Trump campaign help and they took it and they offered the uh, Clinton campaign help and they didn't um, probably a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. So I think those things are understood. Here's the, here's the rub. Um, if you go down this path, if you, a few more steps, what you get to is, oh, fuck, success is really simple. Just figure out what people want and fucking give it to them. And um, there's some truth to that. However, that's when our strategy is to capture existing demand. So people like pizza. I'm going to open a pizza place. There's demand for pizza. I'm going to test recipes until the the quote-unquote dogs eat the food, and Bob's my uncle, I have a successful business, and a year later I'm out of business, and I wonder why, because everybody quote-unquote liked the product. On the other hand, um, there's a startup I'm working with right now who's incredibly early stage, and I wouldn't even really characterize them as a startup professor. They're an idea, and they're an idea that we believe is very directionally right, and the founders and the investors and advisors around the company, we all know while we're directionally right on what problem we want to solve and sort of what a solution might look like, we actually know that we don't know what we're doing yet. 
And so in this regard, we're directionally right. We have prototype, we're moving, and now we're getting feedback. And we're trying to listen for feedback that is very different than feedback that you would normally get from an existing product, which is, oh, you know, make it a little smaller, make it a little bigger, make it a little whatever. We're trying to listen to a very particular kind of feedback, which is, um, if I, in this case, it's an enterprise application company. If I'm going to work in a different and new way in the future, I would like to have something along these lines, which is very different than I would like an incremental feature of a thing that I already understand. So with all that said, doctor, how do we, on one hand, there's real value in listening to the market, what my partner Eddie Yoon calls super consumers, the, the very small percentage of people in any given market category that are passionate about it and do cool things in it. So on one hand, this is incredibly important and listening to them as we're kind of, as we're pressure testing new ideas, incredibly important. But at the same time, there's the old Henry Ford if I'd listened to my customers, I would have built a faster horse. And so there's some magic line we're trying to walk as we, as we do this kind of an exercise. And I'm very curious how you think about it, uh, you know, based on your research and, and all your work. You're asking a really important question, which is really at the heart of a critique that has um, dogged the market research industry now for over a decade. And I think an important way of thinking about it is not necessarily to ask people, uh, to assume that consumers are going to have the answer about what they want. However, I do think they're very good at answering whether or not an idea is appealing. And so it's really kind of a different frame. And, and one, of the, one, of the, one of the strategies I talk about in the book and, uh, is, is to sell first and build later which is essentially the idea of starting with the sales page before you build the product. And that is an example of, of a technique that you can use in some of the research you're considering doing with, with this startup, which is come up with different iterations of what the product might actually be, and then ask people whether they would pay for it. Or in the case of an entrepreneur, you can simply start a waiting list and determine whether or not people are clicking on it and adding their name for when the product becomes available. That will help you determine demand right out of the gate without necessarily investing any time in, in building the product. And I have a story in the book that goes along with this, which is the story of um, Nick Swinmurm, who you may be familiar with, but uh, I know a lot of people are not familiar with. And it, it's a story of how in the late uh, 1990s, he was looking for a pair of shoes uh, at the mall, knew exactly which one he wanted, the color he wanted, couldn't find it anywhere. And it just occurs to him that there's got to be a better way of buying shoes. This again, in the 1990s, there's no shoe website. And so instead of investing in building a shoe warehouse and then building a website or finding investors and then doing the same, he decides to connect with the owner of a local shoe store and makes that person a, a, an offer and says, hey, I'd like to take a picture of all your shoes. I'll put them online. If anybody buys them, I'll just come right to your store and I'll pay for them myself and ship them out. How does that sound? The guy says, sounds great. Uh, Nick Swinmurm is one of the founders of Zappos. And that's a great example of someone who didn't waste the time or energy to create the infrastructure before he confirmed that there was demand. And that is the way we should be thinking about some of these risks that we're taking. Again, you don't have to be courageous to approach someone, a single person, not, not you know revamping your website. Go to a single person or five of your customers and say, hey, what do you think of this product? That's going to give you much better feedback than investing in creating the product or 
uh, you know, simply running a focus group about, you know, the directional, is this directionally correct? I mean, I guess that's useful, but why not just start with the sales page and then get reaction to that? So thank you for that. And I think this, I don't maybe want to say the most, but certainly one of the, this, this, this point we're on is a very important nuance and it might be one of the most important parts, at least in how I interpret your work. At the beginning of that, you said, val- I think if I wrote it down right, you said validating the idea. Mm-hmm. So what yeah. we're, at some point we may want feedback on the product or the solution, mm-hmm. but validating the idea is, are we directionally right? Are, are we communicating something to you in a way that you see this the way we see this? Is, is that what you, is that, because that's what I take from uh, validating the idea. Are we looking at the problem or the opportunity um, in the way you are, um, or if we communicate it or language it to you in this way, does any kind of a light bulb go off in your head where you go, holy shit, maybe I should give that a thought. Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean by sort of validating the idea, doctor? Well, in the case, just to make this concrete, because we're talking in abstractions that I, I know that that could be hard to follow. So in the case of uh, somebody who wants to write a novel, right? That's a big investment of time. And figuring out how to write the perfect novel, um, we're talking years before you can take it to an agent, let alone to a publisher, let alone getting a movie deal. I mean, we're talking literally decades. But if you wrote a query letter that summarizes the premise and you sent that to 10 agents and you see what the reaction is, or better yet, go to 10 readers and see, hey, would you want to read this book? If so, how much would you pay for it? Uh, that gives you a much better indication of whether the book is pursuing in the first place. And so what I'm arguing in this book is don't waste your time creating the perfect version of something nobody wants. Instead, confirm that you are, as you said, it directionally correct, that you've got something that people are interested in. Confirm that they're willing to make the investment that will determine whether or not you would be successful and then create the perfect product. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. That was awesome. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time not doing this, so I've learned from my mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and and I do, you know, sometimes uh, to get back to your point on sort of shitting on courage a little bit, uh, I do think when people hear that, um, maybe they uh, conflate sort of a cavalier, a, wow, damn the torpedoes, everything is burn the boats. And I'm a big burn the boats guy. But to your point, Smart people do de-risk it. Smart people figure some shit out. You know, by way of um, example, me, Eddie, and Cole started off writing a book together. And then what happened was um, we were putting together all this new primary research and all this cool stuff. And, uh, you know, I have ADHD and I'm impatient. I'm like, fuck, we can't wait a year for this shit to come out. So anyway, long story longer, we launch a newsletter to begin to present our findings and our thinking to the world. And then we have this aha, which is, hey, you know what a newsletter is? A, a, a great way to road test shit for a book. And B, it's this is a side note, but this is a discovery you have along the way. If you uh, do it this way, if you invert the model, so to speak, um, you take a cost called writing a book and you turn it into revenue called writing a newsletter. <laughs> Um, but, but the point being, it was, it's been an interesting flip in thinking to do exactly what you're talking about. So on one hand, we start with a very strong point of view with a very strong set of beliefs 
that are backed up by a, a primary data science research. So we are in no way coming into, in this case, a newsletter, uh, feeling our way through to find out what people like. We're not doing that. We're starting at a place. And we are also starting with a belief that people will pay and that people will consume, in our case, a newsletter that's 5,000 plus words a week, uh, words every week. And people say, ah, there's too many newsletters. And ah, no one's going to read that. And ah, no one's going to pay for that. Well, and of course, all that ends up being wrong. And so it's this finding this place where on one hand, you have the courage of your convictions to try something different, but you're de-risking it by reverse engineering what others who have tried similar things may have done to a place where you get to a level of comfort where you say, okay, now we're ready to lock and load and go. Is, is that what I'm to uh, interpret here, doctor? I think, I think you're gen- generally correct. I think what I'm arguing for is that staring at a blank page is a lot harder than figuring out what's worked for someone else, templatizing it and combining it with something new. Uh, again, you know, you, you've got some direction to go with, you know what's going to work. And now you can start de-risking by selling first, building later, testing. Uh, there's other examples of techniques you can use to de-risk, like working under a pseudonym, having a portfolio career, all these types of techniques that you can use that companies have been using for generations that some individuals simply aren't using. What are they doing? They're told to to, to find their courage and go all in. That's a mistake. Got it. Love that. Hey, let me ask you a question because, yeah, sure. because I, I want so you, I want to understand this newsletter technique that you just uh, hinted at. So you were writing a book and what you decided to do was turn it, turn it into a, or introduce a paid newsletter. Did you indicate to folks that this would become a book? I'm just curious about how this was presented. Uh, we sort of did a wink at them which is, you know, the, the, the axiom, at least in the business, marketing, entrepreneur, content world, which is the world that we're in, is, you know, oh, people, people want memes, people want value bombs, people want listicles, you know. And so if, if you read anything on Fast Company, Inc., Fortune, Forbes, that, that, the thinking is that's the garbage that people want. And our premise is, fuck that. We, we, we would never write anything that today would appear in Inc. Magazine, because if it's an Inc. Magazine, by definition, it's a piece of shit. So we want to have a real substantive conversation with people. So we said, listen, we want to write the newsletter that we would love to read. It's the same thing I've done with my podcasts. And so we got to work on that. And um, we realized when writing the book, Ron, that, that, that what we wanted to have was an ongoing conversation, not just a book. But we wanted to produce books over time. So we started, the wink that we did to everybody was we said, this is not a newsletter, it's a mini book. And so we've explained to our readers, these are all mini books. Some of them we are now going to release as mini books uh, on Amazon. And there will be, you know, big books or as, as, uh, as they might say in the UK, proper books that we will, that we will release that will be, um, you know, based on a lot of the work in the newsletter. Um, so yeah, we are absolutely going to do that. And it's a very powerful new model and not a model that we see a lot of other creators emulating right now. Interesting. And you're utilizing that feedback to improve the final part, the proper book later on. Is that the idea or is that sort less of, of sort of where we are noticing what lands more powerfully and, and what lands less powerfully. What's your metric for that? Uh, well, the good news is on a platform like Substack, they give you a reasonable amount of data. Mm-hmm. So you can see what the open rates are. 
you can see what the new subscriptions that happened on that letter were, what the unsubscribes on that letter were, uh, et cetera. So um, we know when we're going to go write a certain kind of letter that this letter will land more powerfully than a different kind of letter. We all, we as six or seven months in now, we already know that. Now, sometimes, Ron, we make a decision to write a letter that we know won't land as powerfully with most people, but we, we have a reason we want to write it, you know, so we'll go write about racism or we wrote about why it's time for a new category of dying in the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not one of our most popular letters, but we thought it was a very important discussion to have. Mm -hmm. Um, so it doesn't, what's popular doesn't necessarily always influence our agenda, but it's a good insight. It's a really good insight. Mm -hmm. I, I think that is really interesting. And I think for people who are, don't have an inbuilt audience, one of the reasons I wrote that section about testing is because people just don't realize that they have the ability to reach hundreds of thousands of you know people around the globe with just $100. And they can get quick feedback on their idea. And unless you're in Silicon Valley or unless you know about Substack, you're not going to be doing that. And you just see so many people wasting years of their lives building the wrong thing. And it's just, it's such a great opportunity. And, you know, fortunately we have this now available to all of us and I just wish more people knew about it. Yes. And the other thing, and this is maybe a little bit of a side note, I'd be curious if you're starting to find this um, uh, with your own work as an author. When I first started writing and podcasting, I had no idea how personally rewarding interacting with readers and listeners would be. Mm -hmm. I sort of thought it would have to be like a part of a job, you know, but I, I didn't really know. I, I knew that in the case of podcasting, meeting super smart folks like you who write really important new shit, I knew I was going to love that. What I didn't know is how much I was going to love interacting with listeners and readers and how cool it is. You know, we're in 190 countries um, that's a staggering number. I mean, I don't know some of the countries we're downloaded in, mm. right? And I'm sure you've had this as an author where you get a love note from somebody in Bangladesh and you're like, holy fuck, you know, somebody's, somebody just read my book and, you know, and so all of those things, that's a real joy too. And I think for anybody who's a creator, sort of leaning forward on their skis onto that part of it is amazing. I could never reach out and talk to my heroes. There was no way for me as a kid to access David Ogilvie, right? And so it's very cool today in the digital world that you can reach out to almost anybody and a stunning number of people uh, will respond. Yeah. And to that point, it's a great way of reverse engineering their process by asking them the right questions. And that's, as I'm sure you recall, another section in my book on asking those right questions to understand the journey, the process, and the insights that came along the way. And it used to be the case that if you wanted to do something incredible, you really were just relying on on your talent or your practice. But now, through the power of the internet, you can talk to people. If you have a podcast, you can interview people and ask them those questions to better understand their process and improve your skills in a much more uh, efficient way than you would have if you were simply relying on working alone. Amen. Hallelujah. I, I, I like to say, now is a dumb time to be dumb. <laughs> well said. Because of what you just said. I mean, podcasts. There's no excuse, There's no excuse for not it's, knowing anything. It's any. everywhere. You've got the, right. <laughs> it's a dumb time. to. If you're dumb today, you're really fucking dumb. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Inspiring words of wisdom to end on. 
Professor, anything else you want to touch on? <laughs> no, I think you've, been, you've done a great job. I really enjoy listening to you. I think that you, uh, you really do follow through on your premise of having a, a genuine conversation. And I applaud you for that. I think you do a really good job with this. Well, well thank you. And, and I'm curious why, because of course, most people don't want an unedited, authentic conversation. Most people mm -hmm. want to be spoon-fed value bombs and memes and tweets and shit. So I'm just curious why, why you notice that and why you say that. Well, you listen to the answers and you build off them. And it's hard to do that off the cuff. It's hard to speak well after you've just processed new information. So I think that's kind of why many hosts just defer to a list of pre-written questions. Um, and I, I also think that it, it is often the podcasters who inject their own point of view that stand out. And what often happens is that many people just kind of have the same questions as everyone else. And so there's no reason to listen to that particular show. And so here really is, it, it is your differentiator is your personality. And that comes through in the format of the show. And you're leaning into that. And I think that that's something that we can all learn. If you're, if you're thinking about creating your own podcast, right, you want to analyze what's working in the podcast that resonate with me. And if this is one of those shows, that's something to really embrace is the idea that the personality of the host needs to be unique. Thank you for that. I, it took me a long time to learn that. There are some podcasts where the personality of the host doesn't matter at all. They are format-based podcasts. And you could swap, you know, the, the, the biggest example of this is probably the daily show from the New York times, mm -hmm. Michael, I forget his last name, the guy who's the host, you could swap him in and out. Doesn't, he doesn't matter. You know, that sort of, uh, the New York times and NPR in particular have a lot of these shows that are format based that are very good shows. And the host is what I call generically smart, boring white guy. And they think their job is to be not part of the show. And, and, and in that format, they're right. And it works. They make the content it and that's it. Um, I had it explained to me a long time ago that uh, I was the opposite of that. <laughs> and, and you know what? You probably would have been fired from NPR. And just like you would have been fired from working at, at PwC or PricewaterhouseCooper. And as you know, this name of this show is, is, is Follow Your Different. You've really got to em embrace that. Sometimes the best entrepreneurs are the worst employees. It's because they're not very good at just following instructions and not questioning things. That can be a strength given the right context. Yes, I've been fired a lot. So I, I understand exactly what you're talking <laughs> about. And even when I didn't have any money, I never gave a shit about getting fired. I was, I, I, it has taken me a long time to understand why people are afraid of being fired. Um, but that's probably a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the interesting thing is different, independent. You know, these are things that matter to me. If a publisher were to offer uh, me and my partners at Category Pirates a million dollar advance for our next book, there's not a snowball's chance in hell we'll take it. I mean, we wouldn't even think about it for five seconds. The number that would have to be put in front of us by a traditional publisher, it would have to be a giant fucking number. And then, and even then, I'm not sure we'd do it because we don't need them. And it's the same thing in the case of podcasting. You know, I've been approached to be part of podcast networks and this and that and the other. And it's like, fuck that. The whole reason I do this is that I get to do this. And I want to spend zero time talking to anybody who uh, wants to tell me what to do with my podcast, other than maybe my producer, Jason. Uh, but other than that, you know, it's like with advertisers. It's like, listen, we never have a conversation about anything that happens on Follow Your Different, ever. And if you want to have one, you're fucking fired. <laughs>
Yeah. It just, you know, and it goes back to, well, it goes back to, it goes back to your book actually. Right. Um, there are some great podcasts that are very conversational and dialogue in, or in, in nature, but, um, some of them, their format doesn't work for me. I mean, another example of this would be nobody is going to hear an ad read in the middle of our fucking conversation. The ads are going to be on the front end and the back end because in the middle of Dr. Friedman saying something awesome as a listener, I don't want to hear a now word from ZipRecruiter. You've taken and some Dr- shots on ZipRecruiter in past shows too. What is it with you and ZipRecruiter? No, no, I love ZipRecruiter. God bless them because they, <laughs> they, they, they made a giant difference in the podcast industry and they were wicked smart because they, they went all in on podcasts when no one else did. The only reason I use that example is we've just heard ZipRecruiter a billion times on every fucking podcast. I love ZipRecruiter, but um, they don't need to advertise on my podcast and you're sure as hell not going to hear about them or anyone else in the middle of my conversation with Ron. (laughs) Well, they certainly don't need to advertise on this show because they get mentioned on every show. <laughs> Go check out ZipRecruiter at uh, 1-800-ZipRecruiter.com. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that you, one of the things that you've done really well is you've figured out what makes you different and you've gone all in. That takes a lot of courage, for you know, for lack of a better word, in the sense that most people don't feel like they can just do whatever they want, but you've had enough successes where you feel like you can be independent. And I, I just want to empathize with those who don't have that freedom. And I want them to, I want to help them be a little bit smarter in the risk they do take. Yes. And I, I very, and I mean this very sincerely. I understand that a lot of people aren't wired that way. I, I hope people view uh, your book as a, a template to, um, I don't have to just burn the boats. I don't have to be outright. I, I can, I can learn from others and then I can then innovate myself off of those learnings. And if mm-hmm. I find that line where I'm, I'm emulating some of the greats in some ways, but I'm innovating and I'm being myself, I'm not trying to be fill in the blank. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I admire the shit out of David Ogilvy. I'm not trying to be David Ogilvy. Um, and so I think that's what you're doing powerfully. You, you've given people a way to bridge, a way to get to their own originality by leveraging insights, uh, templates, uh, frameworks, if you will, mental frameworks, uh, where it's worked. And my only concern with this kind of a dialogue is that people lean so hard on the, on those frameworks that they end up trying to be David Ogilvy as opposed to learn from David Ogilvy so they can be themselves. And I think that's yeah. the bridge that you're providing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I would say, I, you know, I, I feel like that I'm more concerned about those people who are trying to be complete original, staring at a blank page and then giving up. I've seen that happen so many times with people I've worked with in the past. And you give them this framework of saying, Hey, look, all you need to do is have a system for taking apart those examples that really moved you. And all of a sudden, it just opens their eyes to all these possibilities, and you can be creative with anything, and you can absorb new information in a way that feels empowering rather than deflating. That's the mission of this book. Yes, and it's a, it's a great mission. Anything else, Doctor? That's all. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for writing this wonderful book. Thanks for your time, and uh, you're welcome back anytime. I appreciate that.
Well, there it is. I sure hope you enjoyed this real dialogue with uh, Dr. Ron Friedman. His new book is out. I read it. I loved it. It's great. It's called Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. And you can pick up your copy wherever you pick up legendary books. Also want to tell you, we've got a episode with another, with a, uh, a professor coming up soon named Ed Slingerlin. And he's the professor of philosophy, psychology, and Asian studies at the University of British Columbia. And he wrote a book called, get this, Drunk, How We Slipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. And to the best of our knowledge around here, he's the first major scholar to really dig into how drinking helped create the modern world. <laughs> So we have that coming up soon, given we're heading into the holiday season here. So pay attention to that. And we have a whole bunch of other legendary episodes in the can that we'll be dropping uh, soon. So make sure you subscribe, follow, or whatever it is you're supposed to be doing these days on uh, podcast apps to make sure that you get all of our episodes when they drop. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at Malibu Milk, the world's first whole plant organic flax milk. Check out Malibu Milk with a Y.com. And on checkout, use the discount code DIFFERENT15, DIFFERENT15, for 15% off your for your first, <laughs> not your first episode, your first order. Uh, and Malibu Milk is the world's first whole plant organic flax milk and the first milk company created by a mom. My friends at Hallow App are the world's first real relationship app. Check out H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com today. And my friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's number one distant assistant company. If you need an assistant who is a real person, who is enabled by technology, but who isn't technology, is a human being who is uh, nowhere near you and will never get near you, <laughs> then check out bottleneck.online today. And my friends at onelifefullylive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out today. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that uh, this podcast is created in a studio that does contain nuts, and the creators and producers of this podcast were absolutely consuming libations. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. And Jason is doing a spectacular new project that I encourage you to check out called The Pivoteer. We are at a point in time when more people are changing jobs or thinking about changing jobs or whole careers than at any other time in recorded history. And Jason is an expert at that because he has had many careers. And so uh, go to Substack.com and check out The Pivoteer by Jason DeFilippo. Technical Awesomeness and Lockhead.com are built by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by the handsome and talented uh, GM Simon. Remember to listen to Janice Joplin. Teach kids to think. Don't forget, um, your spouse called and um, he said it's okay. You can subscribe to Category Pirates. Spread podcasts, not viruses. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, the Sodcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott Omelonic, editor of uh, Stink Magazine. I mean, Ink Magazine. Sorry, Scott. We just ran out of time for you. All right. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Uh, please uh, stay safe, stay healthy, stay legendary. And until we hang out again, follow your difference.